0: Chapter Three, of The Bride of Lammermoor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julian Henry. The Bride of Lammermoor, by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter Three. Over God's forbode, then said the king, that thou shouldst shoot at me. William Bell, Climb of the Clue, etc. On the morning after the funeral, the legal officer, whose authority had been found insufficient to effect an interruption of the funeral solemnities of the late Lord Ravenswood, hastened to state before the keeper of resistance which he had met with in the execution of his office. The statesman was seated in a spacious library, once a banqueting-room in the old castle of Ravenswood, as was evident from the armorial insignia still displayed on the carved roof which was vaulted with spanish chestnut and on the stained glass of the casement through which gleamed a dim yet rich light on the long rows of shelves bending under the weight of legal commentators and monkish historians whose ponderous volumes formed the chief and most valued contents of a scottish historian library of the period On the massive oaken table and reading-desk lay a confused mass of letters, petitions, and parchments, to toil amongst which was the pleasure at once and the plague of Sir William Ashton's life. His appearance was grave and even noble, well becoming one who held a high office in the State, and it was not save after long and intimate conversation with him, upon topics of pressing and personal interest, that a stranger could have discovered something vacillating and uncertain in his resolutions, an infirmity of purpose arising from a cautious and timid disposition, which, as he was conscious of its internal influence on his mind, he was, from pride as well as policy, most anxious to conceal from others. He listened with great apparent composure to an exaggerated account of the tumult which had taken place at the funeral, of the contempt thrown on his own authority, and that of the church and state. Nor did he seem moved even by the faithful report of the insulting and threatening language, which had been uttered by young Ravenswood and others, and obviously directed against himself. He heard also what the man had been able to collect, in a very distorted and aggravated shape, of the toasts which had been drunk, and the menaces uttered, at the subsequent entertainment. In fine, he made careful notes of all these particulars, and of the names of the persons by whom, in case of need, an accusation, founded upon these violent proceedings, could be witnessed and made good, and dismissed his informer, secure that he was now master of the remaining fortune, and even of the personal liberty, of young Ravenswood. When the door had closed upon the officer of the law, the Lord Keeper remained for a moment in deep meditation. Then, starting from his seat, paced the apartment as one about to take a sudden and energetic resolution young ravenswood he muttered is now mine he is my own he has placed himself in my hand and he shall bend or break i have not forgot the determined and dogged obstinacy with which his father fought every point to the last resisted every effort at compromise embroiled me in lawsuits and attempted to assail my character when he could not otherwise impugn my rights. This boy he has left behind him, this Edgar, this hot-headed, hare-brained fool, has wrecked his vessel before she has cleared the harbour. I must see that he gains no advantage of some turning tide, which may again float him off. These memoranda, properly stated to the Privy Council, cannot but be construed into an aggravated riot— in which the dignity both of the civil and ecclesiastical authorities stands committed. A heavy fine might be imposed. An order for committing him to Edinburgh, or Blackness Castle, seems not improper. Even a charge of treason might be laid on many of these words and expressions, though God forbid I should prosecute the matter to that extent. No, I will not. I will not touch his life, even if it should be in my power. And yet, if he lives till a change of times, what follows? restitution, perhaps revenge. I knew Athol promised his interest to old Ravenswood, and here is his son already bandying and making a faction by his own contemptible influence. What a ready tool he would be for the use of those who are watching the downfall of our administration. While these thoughts were agitating the mind of the wily statesman, and while he was persuading himself that his own interest and safety, as well as those of his friends and party, depended on using the present advantage to the uttermost against young ravenswood the lord keeper sat down to the desk and proceeded to draw up for the information of the privy council an account of the disorderly proceedings which in contempt of his warrant had taken place at the funeral of lord ravenswood the names of most of the parties concerned as well as the fact itself would he was well aware sound odiously in the ears of his colleagues in administration and most likely instigate them to make an example of young Ravenswood, at least in terrorum. It was a point of delicacy, however, to select such expressions as might infer the young man's culpability, without seeming directly to urge it, which, on the part of Sir William Ashton, his father's ancient antagonist, could not but appear odious and invidious. While he was in the act of composition, labouring to find words which might indicate Edgar Ravenswood to be the cause of the uproar without specifically making such a charge sir william in a pause of his task chanced in looking upward to see the crest of the family for whose heir he was whetting the arrows and disposing the toils of the law carved upon one of the corbels, from which the vaulted roof of the apartment sprung it was a black bull's head with the legend i bide my time and the occasion upon which it was adopted mingled itself singularly and impressively with the subject of his present reflections. It was said by a constant tradition that a Melicius de Ravenswood had, in the thirteenth century, been deprived of his castle and lands by a powerful usurper, who had for a while enjoyed his spoils in quiet. At length, on the eve of a costly banquet, Ravenswood, who had watched his opportunity, introduced himself into the castle with a small band of faithful retainers. The serving of the expected feast was impatiently looked for by the guests, and clamorously demanded by the temporary master of the castle. Ravenswood, who had assumed the disguise of a sower upon the occasion, answered in a stern voice, I bide my time, and at the same moment a bull's head, the ancient symbol of death, was placed upon the table. The explosion of the conspiracy took place upon the signal, and the usurper and his followers were put to death perhaps there was something in this still known and often repeated story which came immediately home to the breast and conscience of the lord keeper for putting from him the paper on which he had begun his report and carefully locking the memoranda which he had prepared into a cabinet which stood beside him he proceeded to walk abroad as if for the purpose of collecting his ideas and reflecting farther on the consequences of the step which he was about to take ere yet they became inevitable In passing through a large Gothic ante-room, Sir William Ashton heard the sound of his daughter's lute. Music, when the performers are concealed, affects us with a pleasure mingled with surprise, and reminds us of the natural concert of birds among the leafy bowers. The statesman, though little accustomed to give way to emotions of this natural and simple class, was still a man and a father. He stopped, therefore, and listened, while the silver tones of Lucy Ashton's voice mingled with the accompaniment in an ancient air, to which someone had adapted the following words. Look not thou on beauties charming, sit thou still when kings are arming, taste not when the wine-cup glistens, speak not when the people listens, stop thine ear against the singer, from the red gold keep thy finger, vacant heart and hand and eye, easy live and quiet die. The sounds ceased and the keeper entered his daughter's apartment the words she had chosen seemed particularly adapted to her character for lucy ashton's exquisitely beautiful yet somewhat girlish features were formed to express peace of mind serenity and indifference to the tinsel of worldly pleasure her locks which were of shadowy gold divided on a brow of exquisite whiteness like a gleam of broken and pallid sunshine upon a hill of snow the expression of the countenance was in the last degree gentle, soft, timid, and feminine, and seemed rather to shrink from the most casual look of a stranger than to court his admiration. Something there was of a Madonna cast, perhaps the result of delicate health, and of residence in a family where the dispositions of the inmates were fiercer, more active, and energetic than her own. Yet her passiveness of disposition was by no means owing to an indifferent or unfeeling mind left to the impulse of her own taste and feelings lucy ashton was peculiarly accessible to those of a romantic caste her secret delight was in the old legendary tales of ardent devotion and unalterable affection chequered as they so often are with strange adventures and supernatural horrors this was her favoured fairy realm and here she erected her aerial palaces but it was only in secret that she laboured at this delusive though delightful architecture in her retired chamber or in the woodland tower which she had chosen for her own and called after her name she was in fancy distributing the prizes at the tournament or raining down influence from her eyes on the valiant competence or she was wandering in the wilderness with una under escort of the generous lion or she was identifying herself with the simple yet noble-minded miranda in the Isle of Wonder and Enchantment. But in her exterior relations to things of this world, Lucy willingly received the ruling impulse from those around her. The alternative was, in general, too indifferent to her to render resistance desirable. And she willingly found a motive for decision in the opinion of her friends, which perhaps she might have sought for in vain in her own choice. Every reader must have observed in some family of his acquaintance, some individual of a temper soft and yielding, who, mixed with stronger and more ardent minds, is borne along by the will of others, with as little power of opposition as the flower which is flung into a running stream. It usually happens that such a compliant and easy disposition, which resigns itself without murmur to the guidance of others, becomes the darling of those to whose inclinations its own seem to be offered, in ungrudging and ready sacrifice, this was eminently the case with lucy ashton her politic weary and worldly father felt for her an affection the strength of which sometimes surprised him into an unusual emotion her elder brother who trod the path of ambition with a haughtier step than his father had also more of human affection a soldier and in a dissolute age he preferred his sister lucy even to pleasure and to military preferment and distinction Her younger brother at an age when trifles chiefly occupied his mind made her the confidante of all his pleasures and anxieties his success in field sports and his quarrels with his tutor and instructors to these details however trivial lucy lent patient and not indifferent attention they moved and interested henry and that was enough to secure her ear her mother alone did not feel that distinguished and predominating affection with which the rest of the family cherished Lucy. She regarded what she termed her daughter's want of spirit as a decided mark that the more plebeian sport of her father predominated in Lucy's veins, and used to call her in derision her Lammermoor shepherdess. To dislike so gentle and inoffensive a being was impossible, but Lady Ashton preferred her eldest son, on whom she descended a large portion of her own ambitious and undaunted disposition to a daughter whose softness of temper seemed allied to feebleness of mind her eldest son was the more partially beloved by his mother because contrary to the usual custom of scottish families of distinction he had been named after the head of the house my sholto she said will support the untarnished honour of his maternal house and elevate and support that of his father poor lucy is unfit for courts or crowded halls Some country laird must be her husband, rich enough to supply her with every comfort, without an effort on her own part, so that she may have nothing to shed a tear for, but the tender apprehension, lest he may break his neck in a fox-chase. It was not so, however, that our house was raised, nor is it so that it can be fortified and augmented. The Lord Keeper's dignity is yet new. It must be born as if we were used to its weight worthy of it, and prompt to assert and maintain it. Before ancient authorities, men bend from customary and hereditary deference. In our presence they will stand erect, unless they are compelled to prostrate themselves. A daughter fit for the sheepfold or the cloister is ill-qualified to exact respect where it is yielded with reluctance, and since heaven refused as a third boy, Lucy should have held a character fit to supply his place. The hour will be a happy one which disposes her hand in marriage to someone whose energy is greater than her own, or whose ambition is of as low an order. So meditated a mother to whom the qualities of her children's hearts, as well as the prospect of their domestic happiness, seemed light in comparison to their rank and temporal greatness. But like many a parent of hot and impatient character, she was mistaken in estimating the feelings of her daughter, who under a semblance of extreme indifference nourished the germ of those passions which sometimes spring up in one night like the gourd of the prophet and astonished the observer by their unexpected ardor and intensity in fact lucy's sentiments seemed chill because nothing had occurred to interest or awaken them her life had hitherto flowed on in a uniform and gentle tenor and happy for her had not its present smoothness of current resembled that of the stream "'as it glides downwards to the waterfall. "'So, Lucy,' said her father, entering as her song was ended, "'does your musical philosopher teach you to condemn the world before you know it? "'That is surely something premature. "'Or did you but speak according to the fashion of fair maidens, "'who are always to hold the pleasures of life in contempt "'till they are pressed upon them by the address of some gentle knight?' "'Lucy blushed. "'disclaimed any inference respecting her own choice "'being drawn from her selection of a song, "'and readily laid aside her instrument at her father's request "'that she would attend him in his walk. "'A large and well-wooded park, or rather chase, "'stretched along the hill behind the castle, "'which, occupying, as we have noticed, "'a pass ascending from the plain, "'seemed built in its very gorge to defend the forest ground "'which arose behind it in shaggy majesty.' Into this romantic region the father and daughter proceeded, arm in arm, by a noble avenue, overarched by embowering elms, beneath which groups of the fallow deer were seen to stray in distant perspective. As they paced slowly on, admiring the different points of view for which Sir William Ashton, notwithstanding the nature of his usual avocations, had considerable taste and feeling, they were overtaken by the forester, or park-keeper, who, intent on sylvan sport, was proceeding with his cross-bow over his arm and a hound led in leash by his boy into the interior of the wood going to shoot us a piece of venison norman said his master as he returned the woodman's salutation sol your honour and that i am will it please you to see the sport oh no said his lordship after looking at his daughter whose colour fled at the idea of seeing the deer shot although had her father expressed his wish that they should accompany norman it was probable she would not even have hinted her reluctance. The forester shrugged his shoulders. "'It was a disheartening thing,' he said, when none of the gentles came down to see the sport. He hoped Captain Sholto would be soon hame, or he might shut up his shop entirely, for Mr. Harry was kept so close with his Latin nonsense that though his will was very good to be in the wood from morning till night, there would be a hopeful lad lost, and no making a man of him. It was not so, he had heard.' In Lord Ravenwood's time, when a buck was to be killed, man and mother's son ran to see. And when the deer fell, the knife was always presented to the knight, and he never gave less than a dollar for the compliment. And there was Edgar Ravenswood, master of Ravenswood, that is now. When he goes up to the wood, there has never been a better hunter since Tristram's time. When Sir Edgar hods out, down goes the deer, faith. But when he lost all sense of woodcraft on this side of the hill. There was much in this harangue highly displeasing to the Lord Keeper's feelings. He could not help observing that his menial despised him, almost avowedly, for not possessing that taste for sport which in those times was deemed the natural and indispensable attribute of a real gentleman. But the master of the game is, in all country houses, a man of great importance, and entitled to use considerable freedom of speech. Sir William therefore only smiled, and replied, he had something else to think upon to-day than killing deer. Meantime, taking out his purse, he gave the ranger a dollar for his encouragement. The fellow received it as the waiter of a fashionable hotel receives double his proper fee from the hands of a country gentleman. That is, with a smile, in which pleasure at the gift is mingled with contempt for the ignorance of the donor. "'Your honour is the bad paymaster,' he said, "'who pays before it is done.' "'What would you do were I to miss the buck "'after you have paid me my wood fee?' "'I suppose,' said the keeper, smiling, "'you would hardly guess what I mean "'were I to tell you of a condictio indebiti. "'Not I, on my soul. "'I guess it is some law phrase, "'but sue a beggar, and your honour knows what follows. "'Well, but I will be just with you, "'and if Brach fail not, "'you shall have a piece of game two fingers fat on the brisket.' As he was about to go off, his master again called him, and asked, as if by accident, whether the master of Ravenswood was actually so brave a man and so good a shooter as the world spoke him. "'Brave? Brave enough, I warrant you,' answered Norman. "'I was in the wood at Tyninghame, when there was a sort of gallant's hunting with my lord. On my soul there was a buck turned to bay made us all stand back. A stout old Trojan of the first head, ten tined branches.' And a brow as broad as air a bullock's. Egad, he dashed at the old lord, and there would have been inlake among the peerage if the master had not whipped roundly in and hamstrung him with his cutlass. He was but sixteen then, bless his heart. And is he as ready with the gun as with the couteau? said Sir William. He'll strike this silver dollar out from between my finger and thumb at four score yards, and I'll hold it out for a gold merk. What more would ye have of eye, hand, lead, and gunpowder? Oh, no more to be wished, certainly," said the Lord Keeper. "But we keep you from your sport, Norman. Good morrow, good Norman." And humming his rustic roundly, the yeoman went on his road. The sound of his rough voice gradually dying away as the distance betwixt them increased. The monk must rise when the matins ring. The abbot may sleep to the chime, but the yeoman must start when the bugles sing. Tis time, my heart's tis time there's bucks and rays and bills hope rays there's a done on shortwood shaw but a lily white doe when the garden goes she's fairly really worth them all has this fellow said the lord keeper when the yeoman's song had died on the wind ever served the ravenswood people that he seems so much interested in them i suppose you know lucy for you make it a point of conscience to record the special history of every boar about the castle i am not quite so faithful a chronicler my dear father but i believe that norman once served here while a boy and before he went to leddington whence you hired him but if you want to know anything of the former family old alice is the best authority and what should i have to do with them pray lucy said her father or with their history or accomplishments nay i do not know sir only that you are asking questions of norman about young ravenswood pshaw child replied her father yet immediately added and who is old alice i think you know all the old women in the country to be sure i do or how could i help the old creatures when they are in hard times and as to old alice she is the very empress of old women and queen of gossips so far as legendary lore is concerned she is blind poor old soul but when she speaks to you you would think she has some way of looking into your very heart I am sure I often cover my face, or turn it away, for it seems as if she saw one change colour, though she has been blind these twenty years. She is worth visiting, were it but to say you have seen a blind and paralytic old woman have so much acuteness of perception, and dignity of manners. I assure you she might be a countess from her language and behaviour. Come, you must go to see Alice. We are not a quarter of a mile from her cottage.' "'All this, my dear,' said the Lord Keeper, is no answer to my question, who this woman is, and what is her connection with the former proprietor's family. Oh, it was something of a nourish-ship, I believe, and she remained here, because her two grandsons were engaged in your service. But it was against her will, I fancy, for the poor old creature is always regretting the change of times and of property. I am much obliged to her, answered the Lord Keeper. She and her folk eat my bread and drink my cup, and are lamenting all the while that they are not still under a family which never could do good, either to themselves or anyone else. Indeed, replied Lucy, I am certain you do old Alice injustice. She has nothing mercenary about her, and would not accept a penny in charity if it were to save her from being starved. She is only talkative, like all old folks, when you put them upon stories of their youth, And she speaks about the Ravenswood people, because she lived under them so many years. But I am sure she is grateful to you, sir, for your protection, and that she would rather speak to you than to any other person in the whole world beside. Do, sir, come and see old Alice. And with the freedom of an indulged daughter, she dragged the Lord Keeper in the direction she desired. End of chapter 3